This week on the show, we cover OpenZFS storage best practices and use cases by Clara Systems, EuroBSDCon trip report, which was quite big and detailed, very nice, disk from the perspective of a file system, creating jails using flavors in pod, OpenIKD 7.3 has been released, as well as OpenSMTBD 7.4.0 patch level 1. FreeBSD can now boot in 25 milliseconds, is what the register reports, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 536, Pot-Flavored Jails, recorded on the 23rd of November 2023. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to find online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show in one way or the other, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash bsdnow. And we thank you in advance for that. Hi, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Jason Tubner. Welcome. We have uh, a new episode for you. You would have not guessed this, but it's true. Uh, it starts off with an article by Clara Systems, like many, many episodes before this one. And this one is about uh, storage best practices and use cases. Part one, snapshots and backups. The great thing about most storage systems is that they're easy to use casually. The terrible thing about most storage systems is that using them well requires significantly more care and practice. Both of these canards hold true for OpenZFS. Whether you're just decided to hop on board the ZFS hype train for the first time, or you've been successfully using it for years, it's a good to, idea to review some best practices and compare them with your own. And that's exactly what we're going to do today in this article. Universal Press Practices. Although many of the tips we talk about today are specific to particular use cases, OpenZFS for databases, OpenZFS large file servers, OpenZFS for virtual machine hosts, and so forth, we'd be remiss if we didn't open with some tips and best practices for all OpenZFS systems. Many of these tips aren't even specific to OpenZFS itself, but there's never a bad time to go over Storage 101. RAID Z is not a backup. Neither are mirrors and neither is DRAID. Many people look at redundant topologies like conventional RAID 5 or OpenZFS RAID Z2 and think, well, that's backup sorted. This is an enormous mistake and it'll bite the person who makes it, probably much sooner than they'd expected. Redundant topologies are important for two things in OpenZFS, improving system uptime and allowing the system to automatically heal or self-repair for data and metadata. Although this does allow the system to survive a specific types of hardware failure, most notably drive failure faults, it does not protect the system from common failure modes that proper backup methods should. Catastrophic hardware failure, catastrophic environment failure, human user error, and human administrator error. If your server catches on fire, RAID Z won't save you. If a tornado destroys your facility, RAID Z won't help you. If a user deletes a file, RAID Z won't bring it back. If an administrator destroys an entire pool, RAID Z absolutely won't help you. Snapshots are only part of a good backup strategy. OpenZFS snapshots are frankly amazing. They can take an instantaneous capture the entire contents of 
or one of all several data sets with atomic precision and do not negatively impact system performance like LVM snapshots do. By themselves, however, snapshots are still not a complete backup. Taking a snapshot can protect your system from human user error and even user malice. A snapshot still cannot entirely protect your system from human administrator error, however, and it's no protection whatsoever from administrator level malice. Snapshots also do not protect the system from catastrophic hardware or environmental failures. At least, locally stored snapshots don't. That's where OpenZFS snapshot replication comes in. Using OpenZFS replication, an administrator can not only preserve the local storage system state, but replicate it to an entirely separate machine. The policies and procedures surrounding both replication itself and the replication target are what can extend OpenZFS snapshotting into a viable full-service backup strategy. If the replication target is on separate hardware, the system's data is protected from catastrophic hardware failure. If the replication target is off-site, the system's data is protected from catastrophic environmental failure. Protecting the system from human administrator level error or malice is, of course, trickier. In a sufficiently paranoid environment, the replication target can be kept firewalled entirely from the production environment and from any other security concerns. In particularly high security environments, the backup system may even require direct physical access to retrieve its data. Snapshots are only useful if they've already been taken. By the time you need a snapshot, it's too late to take the snapshot. While it's great to get in a habit of manually taking snapshots before doing risky things, i.e. upgrading to FreeBSD 14.0, it's easily to forget to take the preliminary snapshot and it's unfortunately easy not to realize you're doing something dumb before you've already done it. For this reason, every OpenZFS storage system should have an automated snapshot orchestration system such a system can be configured to automatically take snapshots at regular intervals and also destroy the older snapshots at regular intervals to keep the system from becoming choked with immutable data. Our two particular common snapshot systems in use today are Sanoid and PiZat. Both systems allow administrators to define snapshot policies, which in turn control how frequency or how frequently snapshots are taken and under what conditions they become stale, meaning they can and should be automatically destroyed to reclaim storage free space. Did we mention backup? Backup is important. Without reliable high performance file system replication, backups are incredibly difficult to get right. You need to worry about backing up all the right things about the consistency of the backup. In, in other words, if it takes an hour to run your backup, the files in the backup should not be changing while the backup runs about the impact on system performance while the backup is happening, and most crucially of all, about whether you can actually restore the backup later should you need it. Luckily, this is an article about OpenZFS, best practices specifically, which means backups are extremely easy. Just replicate the entire data set or group of data sets that your important stuff lives in off to another machine, far enough separated from the first to make it less vulnerable to catastrophes, which might wipe out your entire system. Universal best practices that aren't about backups. At this point, you're probably wondering if you've got any universal best practices for you that don't amount to backup your system. Of course, 
they're just not as important as the backup related ones. In much the same way that choosing that what to order for dinner is less important than making it to the restaurant in one piece. First, you should enable compression, which is off by default. The right compression algorithm for your workload will not only save space, it will significantly improve performance. OpenZFS offers several compression algorithms, so let's talk about the typical top three choices. LZ4 compression offers moderate compression ratios with very little CPU utilization. ZLE offers compression of zeros and padding only. It won't even try to compress actual data, which makes it an excellent choice for otherwise incompressible data like photos and movies. Finally, the new ZSTD algorithm offers best, better compression ratios than LZ4 at the expense of somewhat higher CPU utilization. Next, we won't, don't recommend ZFS deduplication. It rarely provides much in the way of actual space savings. They can have catastrophically bad impact on write performance, especially several years of use. If you're considering support VDEVs, meaning cache, log, or special, don't try to petition one large SSD to several multiple roles. This almost always results in decreased performance, as in worse than you'd have with no support VDEVs at all. And it's one of the most common mistakes we see newbies make. Finally, whatever your workload is, understand your workload. Storage performance is not one size fits all, and a system which is blindingly fast at one workload can be cripplingly slow on another. Trying to kitchen sink a storage system blindedly applying every technique you've ever heard of someone using as a path to unnecessary expenses, frustration, and failure. Conclusions. In the first part of our series of OpenZFS best practices, we've covered universal considerations that apply to every pool. In the remaining two parts, we'll delve into specific considerations of tuning for file servers and SANs, and then databases and VMs. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on the continuation of the series. Mm -hmm. So yeah, if part two comes out, we'll be covering that in the future as well. And our next item in the headlines is the Eurobeasticon 2023 report. Uh, there's two of them from the same person, and it's very detailed, which is good if uh, people want to actually know, you know, how is it like to attend a BSD conference. Uh, this one is from eerielinuxwordpress.com. And uh, so that particular person has been to his very first BSD, EuroBSDCon uh, or BSD conference uh, in Vienna last year and liked it so much that he also went to uh, the next one, which was in Corimbra in September this year. And these are his experience. I skip a lot of it, even though it's worth reading, um, because it also includes a lot of, you know, travel specifics and how he got there and the hotel and all these things. But I cover uh, most parts about the tutorials and the conference, which I guess most people are interested in. Definitely check out the links in our uh, you know, show notes where the whole article is posted and you can find also pictures there from how it looked in Coimbra, especially the little trident in front of the <laughs> the hotel that greeted the BSD crowd. I guess that was just street graffiti not related to one of the project uh, uh, specific people. Uh, but yeah, it's it was a nice thing to see. Okay, so I start right away in the tutorial day on the first 
uh, day, first half, and that person happened to be in my tutorial. I taught my uh, OpenZFS tutorial on the first day uh, as a full day tutorial, and that's where I started, uh, or I will start here with this tutorial. Full day tutorial, first half. Then I saw Benedict who arrived early as well. Registration had just opened though, so I went there to get my badge. Then I approached Benedict and we also talked for a moment before it was time to go into the tutorial room. While nine people had registered for the OpenZFS introductory workshop, only seven showed up. It went really nice though, as the people who were there are very interested in the topic. We had lively contributions by some of the attendees, especially those sitting in the front, myself included. Yeah, I remember that tutorial, that was quite nice. and. I like these interactive parts where I'm not the only person talking, but there's also a lot of knowledge and experience sharing and uh, interaction between the, the audience as well. So I st uh, Benedict uh, started the workshop by asking us to introduce ourselves and also touch on how we already knew about ZFS as well as our motives for taking the tutorial. And he also pointed out to the slides, it's kind of weird to talk about yourself in the third person. Uh, he also pointed out to uh, us the, the slides where, to, where you can get them, mentioning that those were containing more than just bullet points so that they could be more useful for us at a later time when we perhaps didn't remember something anymore or just uh, have a brief summary of uh, things uh, that I didn't uh, really cut. Okay. He explained, or I explained, the very basics like Z pools and then data sets first, because that's really just the the groundwork, the foundational bits you need to understand. When somebody had questions, he answered them right away, which often enough led to topics that he probably would have covered later. Yeah, so sometimes you jump back and forth, but in the end, everyone has covered all the bits. Uh, it doesn't matter too much when you cover them. However, he uh, proved to be completely flexible in that regard, and since the ground of a, or the group of attendees was so small, it worked out very well as a pretty much interactive session. Yeah, if you have a whole, you know, lecture hall of people, then it's it's a different dynamic than having a, a smaller group where you can more directly talk to people. We took the first break while he was running PortSnap to get some data in a newly created dataset with compression enabled. When people returned from the restroom or somewhere else, the program had finished and I continued with some more ZFS goodness until it was lunchtime. I skipped the lunch break part, uh, but there's a nice picture of the stairs in Coimbra showing how steep they were and how much sweat it would take uh, climbing them up in the morning. Then, full day tutorial, second half. Back at the university, Benedict continued with many more things ZFS after the break. At the end of the day, we had covered pretty much all of the topics in his slides, but in an almost entirely different order. It generally went flawlessly, and we all learned something there, including Benedict, yep, who definitely is not the kind of person who could not admit that, yeah, of course, I'm not perfect. You learn something new, that's the benefit of doing these things as well. He also wasn't afraid of trying out things live, which he hadn't done before either. As one might expect, all of his contributed, all of this contributed to an enjoyable atmosphere, making this workshop a very good experience. The only thing that went wrong was him trying to mount a file system which he had created on a Zevo mount would insist on invalid argument on his test machine. He tried a couple of things and people gave some inputs, but the system would stubbornly refuse to do the mount. One of the other attendees who followed along on his own machine confirmed that it did work on his system, and so Benedict invited him to take over the presentation and show it. That was also pretty cool. Summing it all up, I think everybody had a good time and could benefit from the unconventional structure but very clear introduction to ZFS. It was also nice how some of the attendees didn't refrain from telling a bit about personal experience with various aspects of ZFS, even though Benedict's tutorial... Uh, was far from being strictly academic and impractical. Those remarks from the trenches complemented it very well. Okay, so that was just 
me talking about my own tutorial in the uh, third person. Uh, I will teach this tutorial again in future BSD conferences. If you're now interested in that, uh, then check out the next couple BSD conferences, uh, especially EuroBSDCon if you're in Europe. Uh, so afterwards, we talked a little bit more, and we were talking about a special project uh, that particular blog author was involved with, and I uh, recommended to present this at the Dev Summit on the next day. And uh, then after that, they had a look around and recognized one of the first timers they had seen in the morning. And they remembered how it had been for them a year ago and decided to just walk up to him and ask whether they had enjoyed the first day. Of course, he had. He had been to Kirk's tutorial, which they had also considered initially. In the end, I hadn't dared to book it because I thought that it wasn't really for me, a person who hardly knows any C. And I didn't want to take a seat away from somebody who could benefit from that more. Turns out that I had been wrong and I could also have taken it. Yeah, there's also uh, a tutorial like this is taught by Kirk regularly at BSD events. Okay, uh, besides Kirk's tutorial, they chatted about other things like PF and OpenBSD and FreeBSD and of course how BSD compares to Linux. Uh, but the trip took uh, its toll on me and so I decided to walk to the hotel to get some rest and uh, jotted down some notes that went into this tutorial. Okay, so switching now to the second article which covers the second day and the main conference. Yeah, so main conference day one, and we'll just uh, touch on the talks as well. Uh, there's a lot of other discussion that occurs, or story, should I say, that occurs mm. in these articles. So highly recommend you seeing the show notes and reading through the whole article yourself. We're just summarizing the bits that are specific around the conference here. So day one talks, then it was time for the keynote. There was a technical difficulty, so the presentation started somewhat late. Right after Henning made a joke that we were following the example set by Deutsche Bahn and were 20 minutes late now, but hope to catch up later after lunch. The keynote was about something that's not exactly my topic, gender diversity in computer science. There's too many really weird things going on in the field, so I didn't expect much from it but it was actually good. In fact, I'd go as far as claiming that the topic is an important one and some of the points the speaker made resonated with me. Well, I don't agree with everything. In fact, I wrote her a longer email the next morning. Next, I went to talk to Taylor's talk simply for the reason that we had met yesterday. I'd planned otherwise originally. I enjoyed it a lot. and He's not just a very nice person, but also a good speaker. Hadn't known exactly what to expect from the talk, but certainly didn't regret going there. Next for me were the lightning talks in the same room. There were problems with the laptops and projectors again, so they took longer than anticipated, and we had to further delay taking the family photo, which Henning had scheduled for one o'clock. Uh, Sharon Tenar presented a quick invitation to OpenFest in Sofia, Bulgaria, then Matthew reported on the status of Wayland on OpenBSD. Still quite a bit of work to do, but things are starting to work. Luca presented on adding sub-packages to FreeBSD ports. There's no ETA yet. And Mohammed talked about the challenges and necessary tricks of getting OpenBSD installed on fairly restricted mini-router. On the way to the auditorial uh, to take the photo, I talked to Luca about the planned sub-package feature for FreeBSD. I got some interesting info from him and passed on some experiences from what we call the dev split in Ravenport. 
it happened in January or so and what was a pretty big thing despite us having a much, much smaller tree. Luca's plan is sound as far as I can tell and he's doing the right thing with keeping the very invasive changes out of scope for now. Uh, moving down a bit further. This time I wasn't sure which talk to choose. Should I go the Matthews talk on OpenBSD's routing demons or Corwin's one on GPU pass-through for Beehive again to hear what's new? I had been to his previous talk in Vienna. In the end, I didn't go to either as I got stuck in the modium table. They were handing out floppy disks. Yes, seriously. Which contains a bootable DOS system plus a TCP IP stack, networking tools, a functioning web, functional web server, which supports HTTP 1.1, as well as FTP and IRC clients, among other things. And that's not actually the craziest thing that they had there. I'm surprised that all that fits on one floppy disk. Eric was sitting at a 80286 computer with a CRT monitor on which he showed that the network and IRC actually worked. The machine had both a physical floppy drive and a floppy emulator. On the latter, you would attach the USB stick and select images like it was a CD emulator. And if it was not geeky enough already, it also featured a sound chip which emulated the floppy drive sounds when it was accessing data. <laughs> Lots of cool stuff. We talked a bit about the demo scene and they showed me their favorite demo, which I didn't know before. There's so much breathtaking awesomeness things out there that it's hard to believe and I've had to contact to the scene and seen as before. As it as I was far too late for the talks going on right now, I talked to Deb Goodwin at the foundation table instead. Among other things, I asked her about some of the legal requirements regarding usage of the FreeBSD logo. She confirmed that I she confirmed that the way I plan to use it for my Ravenports guide is perfectly fine. I also grabbed some goodies and thought about donating some money right there, but then decided to do so online instead. The difference is unlikely when given giving them cash, your name will appear on the list of donors. While I actually don't care about that, being able to prove that many individuals donate help the foundation maintain their 501c3 status. I went to Warner's talk next to present on the Linux boot and FreeBSD. First, he traced the history of the Linux boot project, explained what it actually does and why it's useful to make FreeBSD able to boot from it. For me, that explanation had definitely been in order as I'd been ignorant about, the, about this almost entirely. The talk was interesting with a good mix of background info to get the whole picture, more detailed coverage of some of the specific problems he faced and decisions he made. I had trouble following a couple of times though. Not because Warner was being unclear, he definitely wasn't, but the air in the room had become pretty bad by then, getting low on oxygen, and I was still deprived of sleep. Main conference day two. Talks. There was time on Sunday, Sunday's keynote. Philip presented on 20 plus years of EuroBSD con, which I liked a lot. For people like me who are into history anyway, getting to at least learn something about all that I've missed on is also great fun. Nice coincidence. Just after the keynote, I ran in Jorgen and could ask him uh, some more precise questions about very early conferences. I went to the other building again to see with Jerome's talk 
would actually be about. Quickly went to the restroom though and had a good laugh again. There had been this broken toilet with a sheet of paper on the door that said broken, kaput, do not use. In the meantime, somebody had made an amendment. So now it said broken, kaput, like Linux, do not use. (laughs) The defending democracy using BSD was special for several reasons. The only one I think that on purpose was not recorded or streamed. So if you weren't there or in Cambria, you were not going to see it. Very old school. Live once, then gone. While I didn't have to sign a treaty with my own blood or anything, I'm not going to go into it too much detail here, but because I can see why they did that. Short summary, Jerome's company uses BSD, and in addition to pretty standard corporations, they have clients from human rights organisations and political parties. As you can imagine, even with not going into undue details, some of the info that was shared with the audience in the room should not be publicly disclosed. There were a couple of oh wow moments for me, like, for example, when he explained that there are hosting email for one person who has officially been declared public enemy for publishing some of the information regarding human rights in one country. He didn't have a lot of slides and actually talk was over quickly, but that was in fact a good thing as there was lots of questions from the audience. I certainly do not regret going there, especially as I'll likely be able to watch the other two talks later. Majority t- major takeaway, BSD is being used to protect some pretty high-profile organizations who are targeted to systematic and well-directed attacks and so far has proven a pretty solid solution for that. Next talk that I went was Albert's on Ansible. That one hasn't been terribly useful for me as I'm clearly missing the Ansible basics required. Since returning home, I've been in contact with Benedict and he was nice enough to give me the Ansible's material from his tutorial on the topic last year. We'll need to find some time to dig on the, into the topic at a later and probably rewatch the talk. Highly recommend that. It was worked really well for me. The second last talk slot had been especially cruel for me as I've loved to go to all three. One of them was cancelled, limiting my choices, but still. Running native Docker containers on FreeBSD was a more compelling topic, but the other one given by Michael Dexter, whose talk last year had been a great finisher for a great conference. I felt like I could use some energy, inspiration, which he'd probably provide again. So in the end, I opted for the other talk with a bit of bad conscience. The latter quickly went away, and after a couple of minutes, I didn't regret a thing. So if you're reading this, you are likely a BSD person and already know that FreeBSD is such a good platform for building appliances, for learning and teaching, and for so many other things. But if you ever get asked about this by somebody interested, point him or her to the talk when it becomes available. Michael not just makes good points. Many people can do that pretty well. What he does, a really outstanding job, is conveying the passion and being completely authentic. If anybody was to doubt his dedication and genuine excitement about what has been achieved and what might be achieved together for a moment, I would downright question that person's judgment. Thanks again for doing what you do, Michael, especially since last year you mentioned that in the beginning you were more of a shy person. It would have been a major loss had you 
not found the determination to muster up enough courage and start giving talks. And he goes into his journey home uh, through Portugal. There's a lot more content in that article, so highly recommend you go checking out in the show notes. Yep, all good things, details, and you can really see individual reports about a conference are different, even if you had been at the same place. Uh, individual interactions and uh, things they learned there are unique to everyone. Okay, in our news roundup this week, we have Discs from the Perspective of a File System by none other by Dr. Marshall Kirk McCusick. Uh, That's an ACMQ article that he wrote, and it starts off with the subheadline, Discs Lie, and the controllers that run them are partners in crime. And so we thought this would be a nice uh, thing to cover here on the episode. Here is it. Most applications do not deal with disks directly, instead storing their data in files in a file system, which protects us from those scoundrel disks. After all, a key task for the file system is to ensure that the file system can always be recovered to a consistent state after an unplanned system crash, for example, a power failure. And yes, Kirk McCuse would know since he has been working on UFS since like the very early days of Unix, or the BSD in particular, so he has a great experience there and uh, has implemented many of these things that save our data from being going into the abyss. Okay, while a good file system will be able to beat the disk into submission, the required effort can be great and the reduced performance annoying. This article examines the shortcuts that disks take and the hoops that file systems must jump through to get the desired reliability. While the file system must recover a consistent state, that state usually reflects the one that the file system was in some time before the crash. While often data written in the minute before the crash may be lost. The reason for this loss is that the file system was not yet had the opportunity to write that data to disk. When an application needs to ensure that data has been recovered after a crash, it does an F-sync system call on the files or the file that contains the data in need of long-term stability. Before returning from the F-Sync system call, the file system must ensure that all the data associated with the file can be recovered after a crash, even if the crash happens immediately after the return of the F-Sync system call. The file system implements F-Sync by finding all the data, or the dirty unwritten file data, and writing it to the disk. Historically, the file system would issue a write request to the disk for the dirty file data and then wait for the write completion notification to arrive. This technique worked reliably until the advent of track caches in disk controllers. Track caching controllers have a large buffer in the controller that accumulates the data being written to the disk. To avoid losing nearly an entire revolution to pick up the start of the next block, when writing sequential disk blocks, the controller issues a write completion notification when the data is in the track cache rather than when it is on the disk. The early write completion notification is done in the hopes that the system will issue a write request for the next block on the disk in time for the controller to be able to write it immediately following the end of the previous block. So this approach has one serious negative side effect. When the write completion notification is delivered, the file system expects the data to be on stable storage. If the data is only in the track cache but not yet on the disk, the file system can fail to deliver the integrity promised to the user applications using the F-Sync system call. In particular, semantics will be violated if the power fails after a write completion notification but before the data is written to disk. Some vendors eliminate this problem by using non-volatile memory for the track crash 
track cache and providing microcode restart after power failure to determine which operations need to be completed. Because this option is expensive, few controllers provide this functionality. Newer disks resolve this problem with a technique called tag queuing, in which each request passed by the disk driver is assigned a unique numeric, numeric tag. Most disk controllers that support tag queuing will accept at least 16 pending I.O. requests. After each request is finished, possibly in a different order than the one in which they were presented to the disk, the tag of the completed request is returned as the uh, part of the write completion notification. If several contiguous blocks are presented to the disk controller, it can begin work on the next block while notification for the tag of the previous one is being returned. Thus, tag queuing allows applications to be accurately notified when their data has reached stable storage without incurring the penalty of lost disk revolutions when writing contiguous blocks. The f-sync of a file is implemented by sending all the notification blocks of the file to the disk and then waiting until the tags of all those blocks have been acknowledged as written. Tag queuing was first implemented in SCSI disks, enabling them to have both reliability and speed. ATA disks which lacked tag queuing could be run either with the write cache enabled, the default, to provide speed at the cost of reliability after a crash, or with the write cache disabled, which provided the reliability after a crash but at a 50% reduction in write speed. To escape this conundrum, the ATA specification added an attempt at tag queuing with the same name as that used by the SCSI specification TCQ, tag command queuing. Unfortunately, in a deviation from the SCSI specification, TCQ for ATA allowed the completion of a tag request to depend on whether the write cache was enabled, issue write completion notification when the cache is hit, or disabled, issue write completion notification when media is hit. Those, or thus, it uh, added complexity with no benefit. And then it goes a little bit further into implementation of SATA, how it uh, uses native command queuing there, and uh, things that are important about that. Another recent trend in rotating media has been in change has been a change in the sector size of the disk. From the time of their first availability in 1950s until the 2010s, the sector size of the disk has been 512 bytes. In 2010, disk manufacturers began producing disks with 4096 byte sectors or 4K sectors. As the write density for disks has increased over the years, the error rate per bit has risen, requiring the use of ever longer correction codes. The errors are not uniformly distributed across the disks, rather a small defect will cause the loss of a string of bits. Most sectors will have few errors, but a small defect can cause a single sector to experience many bits needing correction. Thus the error code must have enough redundancy for each sector to handle a high correction rate even though most sectors will not require it. Using larger sectors makes it possible to amortize the cost of the extra error-correcting bits over long runs of bits. Using sectors that are eight times larger also eliminates 88% of the sector start and stop headers, further reducing the number of non-data bits on the disk. The net effect of going from 512 to 4096 byte sectors is a near doubling of the amount of user data that can be stored on a given disk technology. There's a little bit of a section about compatibility with older application and how these are handled. And there is the last few paragraphs that are going like this. Some file systems have adapted to the change in sector size by placing several small files in a single 4K sector. To avoid the need to do a read-modify-write operation to update a small file, the file system collects a set of small files that have changed recently and writes them out together in a new 4K byte sector. When most of the small 
files within a sector have been rewritten elsewhere. The sector is reclaimed by taking a few remaining small files within it and including them with other nearly written small files in a new sector. The non-empty sector can then be used for a future allocation. The conclusion is that file systems need to be aware of this disk technology on which they are running to ensure that they can reliably deliver the semantics they have been promised. Users need to be aware of the constraints that different disk technology places on the file system and selects a technology that will not result in poor performance for the type of file system workload they will be using. Perhaps going further, they should just eschew those lying disks and switch to using flash memory technology, unless, of course, the flash storage starts using the same cost-cutting tricks. Moving on to uh, an announcement of OpenIKD 7.3 being released. So usually after a, a release has been made by OpenBSD, the portable editions of uh, certain technologies within inside OpenBSD is released to the public for use in other operating systems such as FreeBSD and the Linuxes. So OpenIKD 7.3, we've released OpenIKD 7.3, which will be arriving in the OpenIKD directory of your local OpenBSD mirror soon. This release includes the following changes to the previous release. Re-execute child processes after forking for better process isolation. Support for new route-based SEC4 tunnels on OpenBSD. Handle full X509 chains insert payloads. Support multiple name servers per instance on Linux. Refactor internal iBuff API for OpenBSD 7.4. Optionally used libsystemd to configure DNS via DBAS instead of calling resolve CTL CLI tool on Linux. Dropped libappArmor dependency on Linux in favor of direct, directly using the slash proc interface. This allows us to open the file descriptors before dropping privileges and change policy afterwards, allowing for even stricter AppArmor confinement. Fix the OpenSSL config used by IKCTL to allow renewing expired certificates. Sync compatibility layer with OpenBSD. Fix some memory leaks. OpenIKD is known to compile and run on OpenBSD, FreeBSD, NetBSD, macOS, and Linux distributions, Arch, Debian, Fedora, and Ubuntu. Uh, it is our hope that packages take interest and help adapt OpenIKD to more distributions. And then there's the links to the repositories, uh, the portable repositories. We welcome feedback and improvements from the broader community. Thanks all to the contributors who helped make this release possible. Uh, we're uh, at work using the SEC4 tunnels already. Um, that's uh, a provision in OpenIKD, so uh, they work nice. It's just made a big configuration change, so uh, that's one real big feature that uh, we like in OpenBSD 7.4. All right. Uh, there's also news from OpenSMTPD, also on the... OpenBSD announced mailing list. OpenSMTPD is a free implementation for those who don't know of the SMTP protocol with some common extensions. It allows ordinary machines to exchange emails with systems speaking the SMTP protocol and implements a fairly large set of RFC 5321. It can already cover a large range of use cases. Uh, what's new in this uh, release? Uh, fixed potential crash with LibreSSL versions prior to 3.8 due to arc for random underscore buff symbol crash. Uh, or clash, uh, fix the man page install path, reintroduce dash dash with dash man, man type, 
fix the typo in the configure help string, it's without uh, dash libbsd, and fixed a couple of issues on the macOS, fixed the typo that results in the redeclaration of string length copy and string length cat, as well as cast subseconds underscore t to long for printf pointers, as well as fixed res h and ok and b64 p ton or anton discovery. Uh, moving on to creating a jail based on the flavor. So this article is on bitesize.de. It comes in two flavors. You can read it in native German or there's a English version down further. Uh, FreeBSD creating jails using flavors in pot. Flavors on the pot are an excellent way of creating jails on FreeBSD. In my previous article on task framework, I demonstrated how to create a flavor. For clarification, a flavor is nothing more than a template. Based on this, jails can be reproduced any number of times with one-time configuration effort. Once pot is installed and initialized, you can get started straight away. If not, feel free to check here again. Creating a jail based on the flavor. In this example, I'll show you how to create the flavor with minimal effort to install software when creating a new jail. The template can then be used as many times as needed to create similar jails. Uh, so first navigate to the folder and there's uh, command lines here. I won't go through the command lines. I'll just uh, stay with the uh, written text. Using VI or another text editor, create a file there. It should be a shell script with a file extension .sh. The name doesn't matter and can be freely chosen. In my case, the script is named standard, vi standard.sh. Now you can list your preferred software just as you normally would in the terminal. So package update and end, package upgrade, package install, bind 918, kia 2.4.0.1, htop, vim, uh, service named enabled and service care enabled. Save the file and you can immediately use your favorite, uh, your flavor of flavor to create a jail. In this example, I'm installing Bind as a DNS server, Kia as a DHCP, HTOP for process management, and Vim as my text editor. Finally, I enable the services like Bind and Kia, so they start automatically on restart. To create your jail based on a flavor, the dash F switch is necessary. If you need to specify the path to your script, the path can be absolute or relative. Since I'm already in user local etc pot flavors directory, I only need to specify the recently created shell script. And then it's the full command line there. During the creation, you'll each command being executed gradually. And finally, your jail will have the preferred software available. The only thing you have to do is start your jail. Pot start my jail. That's it. Flavors allow you to create jails with a one-time effort without having to manually install or configure everything every time. While this can be expanded and made more complex, this article serves as an introduction to the topic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great. So people can flavorize <laughs> their own uh, jails in the way they like. Yep, containerize those processes so you don't have uh, your whole host OS being populated with stuff with conflicts everywhere. Uh, jails allows you to keep those conflicts localized. Mm. Or they also have a, a separate article on their blog about creating a throwaway Firefox browser that you can just keep in a pot jail and just throw it away when, when you don't need it anymore so it's always fresh and doesn't have any cookies or other stuff that websites store in it. 
so it's always privacy turned to 11 yeah <laughs> okay um the register lets us know that freebsd can now boot in 25 milliseconds this is of course referencing to our last week's episode where we covered freebsd 14 uh in detail and one of these changes are from colin percival uh who did a lot of work in the boot se sequence or uh, in the uh, boot ups uh yeah procedure that uh was keeping some old stuff in there that uh, nowadays is a bit obsolete and that caused the freebsd boot to be slow in comparison but now with freebsd 14 all these changes are available to the general public and that's what the uh register article here is talking about on aws firecracker uh freebsd boots in 25 milliseconds but there are other new micro vm engines around too replacing a sort algorithm in the freebsd kernel has improved its boot speed by a factor of 100 or more and although it's aimed as a, at a micro vm the gains should benefit everyone micro vms are a hot area of technology r&d in the last half decade or so the core idea is a reinventation of some of the concepts and technology that ibm invented along with the hypervisor in the 1960s designing oss specifically to run as guests under another os this means building the os specifically to run inside the vm and to talk to resources provided by specific hypervisor rather than fake hardware this means that the guest OS needs next to no support for real hardware, just virtio drivers which talk directly to facilities provided by the host hypervisor, and in turn, the hypervisor doesn't have to provide an emulated PCI bus, emulated power management, emulated graphics cards, emulated network interface cards, and so on. The result is that the hypervisor itself can be much smaller and simpler. And they talk a bit more about this and what benefits they bring. Uh, further down, Firecracker is based on Linux kernels built in KVM hypervisor. In itself, something of a departure, as up until then, AWS was based on the Zen hypervisor. This means it's inherently a Linux on Linux offering. That sounded like a challenge to FreeBSD kernel developer Colin Percival, as we reported a year ago, and that's a separate link to that article. He decided to get FreeBSD running on Firecracker. As with most computing in general, though, the overall optimization process is first, get it working at all, then make it go fast. According to his tweet earlier the week that this uh, register article came out, uh, his latest performance optimization is impressive, replacing a sort algorithm made part of the FreeBSD kernel startup process around 100 times faster, bringing the kernel loading time down to an impressive 25 milliseconds. That's a quarter of one tenth of a second. And the uh, blog post he uh, mentions or they refer to is FreeBSD head no longer spends time running a bubble sort in its sys its. We're now running a merge sort, which is 100 times faster. And Colin links to the commit uh, where that has happened. And so he also references his own uh, tweet a couple uh, weeks before that when the FreeBSD kernel boots in Firecracker with one CPU, 125 megabytes of RAM, it now spends 7% of its time running a bubble sort on its sys sysinits and uh, O of N square can bite hard when you're sorting over a thousand items. Yep. Time to replace the bubble sort with faster and that was the bubble uh, or the merge sort he's now using and everyone is now using when they run FreeBSD 14 which made these things go much faster. The tweak is just the latest in the long series, which he described in much more detail a couple of days later. It describes the preliminary changes needed to get it booting at all, removing several initialization steps, which assumed it was booting under Zen, then curing a CPI for the type and number of processors. That failed, as Firecracker doesn't provide a CPI, then initializing 
one of the only bits of hardware it does emulate, a serial console failed. And so uh, they describe a bit more about the process. After the kernel was successfully started, uh, memory usage quickly became a problem. Firecracker defaults to designing the guest Amir 125, no, 128 megabytes of RAM due to the assumption which had to be changed. That follows is a whole laundry list of optimization, each of which contributed a small time saving. It's an interesting read, even if you're not super technical. Some of the steps changed things that were quite reasonable choices for booting a dedicated hardware, which no longer makes sense in a virtual environment where a machine is spawned, does some work, and is deleted again within a matter of a few seconds. So Percival commented, I believe Linux is at 75 to 80 milliseconds for the same environment where I have previously booting in 25 milliseconds. And he continued, when I started working on speeding up the boot process, the kernel took about 10 seconds to boot. So I have a kernel booting about 400 times faster now than I did a few years ago. For now, the optimization kernel is the FreeBSD 14 one on x86-64, but work is underway to bring it to ARM64 as well. AWS is the biggest user of ARM servers in the world. And that's pretty much it. They talk a bit more about Firecracker and how containers could benefit from that. But the essentials are that Colin did a lot of good work here to make everyone's boot a lot faster. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, he's got it down so fast that uh, Linux is uh, still running at 75 to 80 milliseconds for a boot, where he's got FreeBSD down to 25 milliseconds. That's, that's amazing. Mm. And he also wrote a utility where you can actually measure each individual step in the kernel boot process and see how long it takes. And he created flame grass and figured out, ah, this is something we should look at and this part is quite good already. So uh, that's also interesting because during the kernel boot, there's not much where you can write stuff to it because it first initializes the disks or the memory in the first place, right? So where you write or start recording this information too is also important so uh, that's also kind of a nice engineering feat to to have bsd now is sponsored by tarsnap everyone needs backups and tarsnap ensures that your backups are not only safe but also secure your data is encrypted on your device before being sent to the cloud so that only you have the ability to read your data tarsnap takes your data and works out what data is duplicated so that bandwidth can be saved. It then assembles your data into compressed blocks, encrypts them with your local private key that never leaves your system, and then uploads those encrypted blocks to the cloud. So even if someone is able to obtain your backed up data in the cloud, they will not be able to decrypt it and access your files. TarSnap is easy to use. If you can use Tar, then you can use TarSnap. TarSnap is prepaid, so you never have to worry about an unexpected bill. TarSnap is fully open source, allowing you to inspect the code to make sure that it does what we say it does. TarSnap also does bug bounties if you find errors in the code. With clients on all major platforms, there's no excuse to not have good backups. Go to tarsnap.com to learn more. All right, I think that's pretty much it for this episode. No feedback uh, received so far uh, up to this point. Uh, definitely do that for future episodes if you found a good article or a blog post, uh, anything new in the BSD space or a tutorial maybe. Send this to feedback at bsdnow.tv so we can include it in a future episode. Other than that, I think we're gearing up for a Christmas episode uh, not too soon from now. So look out for that, whatever that may be, still a surprise. 
And uh, whatever it is, we'll be having another episode out next week. <laughs>